And welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Trip Mitchell, joined as always with over 20 some odd shows on our belt. Under yes, our belt. we're veterans now, aren't we? We are. Randall yeah. Carlisle. Yes, and I apologize for my voice ahead of time and the fact that I may have to cough because I have a chest cold and laryngitis. But Well, we had him go see our, our show doctor, and the show doctor cleared him to be on the air. That he cleared me, but he didn't give me anything to help. So, And if you'll notice, there's no show doctor around. There's no makeup person. There's no wardrobe person. This show sucks. I, You know, we are going to... Could you send that into the complaint department? Yeah, I will. Yeah. It, uh, same office for the complaint department as we have for our doctor, makeup and, artist, yes, yes, and green room. Yes. Dr. However, Dr. Feelgood. We are having... First of all, this show, if you're turning on wondering, why am I watching these guys on Comcast Channel 17? Because Bill Francis helped us get on there. But this is a show about all the wonderful people in the state of Utah who are there for recovery. It's a show about addiction, whether it be drugs or alcohol, and it's a disease that hits everyone and causes damage to cross socioeconomic lines. Millions of people. And Randall and I are both members of an exclusive club called AA. Lee, our producer director, is in the same group. And this is our way of giving back and introducing you, the home audience, or the listening audience on iTunes or any of the other platforms that Spotify. we're on. Spotify. Spotify. A chance to hear about some men and women who've had addiction be part of their lives or people who are working to help people with these problems. It gives us a chance to stay sober for a half hour, then we can go out drinking, right? We, we can. We, we can. choose not we, yes, to. Yes, no. I, yeah. But Randall, you have been in the media, newsman in stations around the country, including a long career here in Salt Lake. After you retired from the news business, how did you get in with Odyssey House? I was, I, one of my reporting beats was The Block, which is Rio Grande, when it was at its worst. And um, when they finally had the crackdown, uh, Odyssey House played a big role. The, the second part of Operation Rio Grande was treatment for those who wanted and needed it. And Odyssey House expanded uh, their facilities, their residential bed count by right, 150, couple hundred beds. I mean, we we doubled our our our, our space, and and so there were a lot of news conferences with the cops and with Odyssey's top people to talk about how that was going to work. And I got to know them, and they offered me this, they offered me a job for media and community relations. And I still had a couple of years left on my TV contract, and I asked to be let out because I just thought this would be perfect for a recovering alcoholic, uh, a perfect place to work, and it'd be something that would be great for my last job of my working career. So that is so that I, is fantastic. And you literally, and you called Channel Four and said, "I've got an opportunity to make well, a difference." And the way I looked at it is, and they knew I was a recovering alcoholic, and I so if you're the GM and I go in and I say, "I'm a recovering alcoholic." And I have a job offer at Odyssey House that I'd really like to take because I think it would make a difference in my life and that maybe I could help them. Will you let me out of my contract early? Now, what are you going to say? Well, as a TV station owner, which in another life I am, if I could have a veteran newsman that I'm paying this much... And TV stations, and you could hire a kid out of college, you're paying this That's much. That's true. That might have been a little more Well, better. maybe it was. It wasn't know. all the good But I'd like to think they would have liked to have looked good through all that because, it, I mean, it, 
if you if there would ever be any publicity saying TV station denies recovering alcoholic chance to work at a treatment center, <laughs> I just you know I don't know. No, there's so, news. Right? <laughs> so, no, they were very gracious about it, very supportive. And you know, it's a situation where you go to work, and you've said this on the show: this is the best job you've ever had. Oh, it is. I mean, in my opinion, Odyssey House is helping a lot of people reclaim their life, and for me personally, it helps me every day to deal with people who are dealing with recovery. And at the end of the day, nobody at Odyssey House says, let's go down to the neighborhood bar for a drink. But they do at the TV station all the time. So, Well, I know where Channel 4 is, and I can't think of any bar that would be safe to go out at. Well, I, there's a brewery right down the street from Channel 4. So, okay. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but you do find, find yeah. the way. Yeah. Well, normally you do an amazing job booking guests. This is my first guest. Well, After we'll see 27. how he does. So who is it? <laughs> Paul Randack, my brother-in-law. We have gone... Very far and wide to do this, but Paul hosts a podcast called Just Another Bozo on the Bus. Yeah. And I've been a guest on Paul's podcast twice, including the post-heart attack show. You did. You interviewed me. I interviewed you, (laughs) which is tough. Randall, you've been a guest. I've been a guest. It was great fun. Do a great job. And Paul, you've been involved in recovery for a long time. A couple decades now. And you've made a career of it. Tell our viewers how you got into it and what essentially has been your role to get to where you are now. Well, that's a a really good question and for a couple of reasons. Is that, um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I wanted to be a therapist and a counselor since I was in high school. But I, I decided to do other things and made other choices and then, you know, some remorse and regret over not doing that, but I did have my own experience with addiction, as you know. I, I, I might have been there I for a little were, bit. I think you were part of it for a while. <laughs> yes, I was. And I think, well, I think we mentioned on uh, on your podcast that you and I became we, acquainted in bars. Yes, yeah, yes. we did. And the, and, back in and the, the day. New Yorker back with it. I don't yes. know if I can say that, but, well, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you put it out of business just saying that. That's horrible. <laughs> An institution. Which one? Portocol? New Yorker. New Yorker. Oh, New Yorker? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, but I, I had my own struggles in, with addiction and primarily cocaine, as you may remember. <laughs> it's, always, it's always funny to have somebody from those yeah days, you, you know? had a great line he goes I don't like it that much I just like how it smells <laughs> yeah. I keep trying to see yeah. how it smells yeah. but, but similar to what you hear a lot of times is that um, having to have that own challenge myself I wanted to be involved in, in helping other people it's about giving back and constantly under the notion that um, I can't keep you know the things in my life and that whether you use terms like recovery or my mental health and well-being my spiritual well-being I can't have those things and I can't hang on to them if I'm not constantly giving them back and helping other people and you know even though today I have some different nomenclature or language around the terms recovery and addiction than I, I had 20 years ago um, I still see that this holds true as why I do what I do is one, I have a deep passion for it, but also I, I love the recovery community. And um, I don't believe that anyone is destined in their life to be hamstrung with addiction. I believe that that is, many people experience addiction in different ways, but I also have a, a, the attitude that I don't know what's right or absolute for anyone else. And so I try to keep as, as an open mind as I can in the ways that I approach it. And I also focus a lot on the mental health issues because it's very rare that you don't have co-occurring 
conditions with people that had drug and alcohol addiction, that depression, bipolar, um, of course, anxiety, um, and then um, other mood disorders associated with that as well. And by the way, since you bring that up, what percentage of people in our community think have some mental health issues? You mean just generally across yeah, the board? Yeah, across the board. I don't. I mean, that is a good question. I've heard different, you know, ratios and numbers and different data about this. Um, if you were talking more about serious mental health issues that, um, you know, need um, serious treatment, um, that's probably fifteen to twenty percent of the population. But people that struggle with mental health issues are like any other thing. I mean, people can have anxiety, you know, lower levels of that, but it's enough to disrupt their life. So either they may go into individual counseling or find a support group. Um, I mean, the numbers can probably get, you know, on average, probably closer to 25%, I think. That's a, yeah. that's a big community of people. It one is. one so, out of every four people we know. Uh, I was trying to do the room two, four, five, so yeah. a couple of us probably. <laughs> yeah, we've got five in the studio right now, and we're five for five. So <laughs> I can, when you, when you think about addiction, it, sometimes people put it in a separate category, but it's not. Yeah. So you really see it as being a part of the, their mental issues that someone sure. has along with the disease of alcohol. Well, yeah, a mental emotional issues. And um, often the addiction, um, at least from my perspective, um, becomes a symptom of those problems, like un whether it be you know, an untreated mood or personality disorder um, or some other type of behavioral health issue. That the, the, the symptom of addiction is usually because there's something else going on. I mean, even simply just saying someone who, who drinks, I mean, that was their, their primary problem you know possibly that that's a, still a symptom of something else and at least in the in the context that I look at addiction these days I don't see it as the primary problem and there may be grief loss abandonment um, trauma and, uh, trauma yes trauma is probably the yes. biggest one attachment issues and so on and it's interesting Paul before we started the show we were talking about Randall working at a great radio station back in Windsor Ontario yeah and you would go over to Canada and back every day, and because you weren't, you'd have to show your draft card to get back. In and the I country. was one A, and Americans, the American customs people, always said, "How come you're not in Nam, boy?" <laughs> and I go, "I don't know." <laughs> Little trauma I'm, there. Yeah. But you had lots of friends who went there, and they came back with a whole host of problems. Right, and you can. We were what 18, 19, 20 years old, and 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 you go over to this foreign country, and you're killing. You're killing women and children at the same time because they were, were going to kill you. They were I mean, you know, well. that's the way. And how can you do that? As a, you know, my father was in World War II, never talked about it, and he always seemed like he had, he seemed to always be screwed up. He's dead now, rest his soul. But when he was dying of cancer and he had enough fentanyl on board, he started telling stories. And the one story he told <laughs> was he was in the South Pacific. And he was a Marine, and they were the first ones on shore on this island. And they came across this platoon of Japanese soldiers. There were like 20 or 30 of them. I don't know if that's a platoon. I'm not military. And they were also dehydrated and, and out of food and everything, that they were just lying around like this. And as opposed to capturing them, his, his sergeant or whatever it is told him to kill everyone. So he's 18 years old, and they slaughter like 20 or 30 people who couldn't, barely crawl on the ground and if that's not trauma for your whole life I don't know what is yeah. 
And people experience trauma in so many different ways. And one way that a lot of us have chosen is pick up a bottle, pick up a drink. It is a way for you to forget about your problems for a little while. Though amazingly enough, and I can tell from experience, they don't go away. (laughs) You don't think about a problem. (laughs) In fact, sometimes they make them bigger. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, you you drink in the evening and, and to numb a problem, you wake up in the morning and you feel like crap. And the problem's still there. It never goes away. <laughs> and that uh, is not a fun yeah, feeling. You know. So in your case, Paul, you made a decision to stop doing cocaine was your... You know, was my... How tough was that decision for you? Um, well, I, I had some other external motivation, <laughs> as you probably know. Um, and it came down to, you know, the choices that I, I needed to make for myself. And it seemed much more of a, a, a practical application to you know, make the choice to, to be sober and make a choice to work on issues that I, I mean, I really saw these issues as parallel, um, the abandonment and the loss and the trauma issues. I, I saw that, that you know, cocaine became a, a, you know, a, at least a consistent way to self-medicate those problems. It wasn't a healthy way and it never really did resolve anything, but it, it took out the, you know, the initial ting or, or hurt that was associated with that. And it became, what I, in my ways, I thought it was reliable, but that was all part of a fallacy. There was no reliability in any drug, you know, mending those kinds of things. So how did you make the transition from quitting to becoming a care specialist and helping people? Yeah. The, the transition was actually pretty quickly, and I, I knew when I, you know, had, because I went into treatment myself and, and had a really an amazing experience, and that that's what really set things in place was um, having good therapists and good counselors uh, and a supportive uh, community to work from. And that's when I really realized how important community was. I mean, in, in AA, they call that the fellowship. But I also see that there are different forms of the recovery community. There are people that use other types of, of modalities, as I, I mentioned before. Um, but it's it's by it's the way, Randall, fellowship. we're going to set up the record for big words on this show today. Modality. Yeah. Okay, there's one to write it down. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. We we you know we have smart viewers, yeah. just not hosts. <laughs> In my case, at least. Well, I, I know you. <laughs> I know you're a smart guy. <laughs> so so I, getting back to modalities, yeah, right. I got to use it four more times. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. What, which modality are you talking about? I'm not yeah, sure what modality okay, means. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can't remember if this is explicit or not. <laughs> no, no, no. We're G-rated modalities. Okay. Thank you, thank you. Because I, I saw something well enough. Okay, so no, I'm no, glad no. I edited. Okay. Um, all right. So, the, what what became apparent for me is that, that I did experience the power of the fellowship and I and I that really is what keyed me into making certain life changes and feeling that I had the ability to do that. So there are a lot of people I know that are like me that, you know, AA was a stepping stone to other other things. But it was the beginning of what brought my awareness and my consciousness to the importance of sobriety and recovery. And it, it in my case your ex-wife, my sister, mm-hmm. I've taken her to meetings. Mm-hmm. My sister Deb is going to meetings with me when mm-hmm. I first got into recovery. And it's funny when you feel like you're you're holding this burden by yourself mm-hmm. and you go into a meeting and you find other people are there to help. Mm-hmm. And then it's fun to have your family go to see the process you're going through, which is really great. Mm-hmm. The fellowship, I think, is so important 
because you'll find that a lot of people when they get into recovery think that they've had their last bit of fun their last mirth, their last laughter, a lot of things you associate with alcohol or drugs. Mm -hmm. And you find out that's not the case. And in some cases, it's more fun not to be mm -hmm. in addiction. Can you talk a little bit about that? And about which part of that? The, the being around other people and that community. Well, I, I believe community is the key. In fact, the research and the studies are pretty remarkable, especially people that were coming back from... Vietnam that maybe were abusing or addicted to heroin over there, I mean, the numbers are pretty strong as far as in the 90 percentile of people that came back that had, small, that had um, powerful and, and vulnerable and intimate um, relationships and connection to community, whether that be family, friends, you know, some other, other form of, of community, church, things like that, that those people were able to stop completely on their own because really... The, 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 the heroin was becoming a symptom of addressing the trauma that they were associated with, as, as Randall, as you were saying, you know, that were doing horrific things and th things that were creating trauma for them, but also the, the loved ones around them, too, because it's difficult to try to re-engage and, and re, um, you know, to reconnect to community if you don't have one to go back to. So the, the people that had the, the most difficult time with not getting off the drugs were people that didn't have those strong bonds outside of the military. People that did, did much better and were able to stop on their own. Now that seems to be true across the board that people that have a strong sense of community and a strong sense of connection and they're willing to be vulnerable and open with their, their family, their friends, their peers, um, have much less struggle and much less stress associated with um, you know, not feeling okay about themselves. I mean, it's, this, this whole notion that, um, you know, I'm not enough or, you know, something's broken um, is sort of that really needs to be changed and realize that, you know, if, if, that I am enough and that um, the ability to be able to make choices um, are something that's ingrained and in, in, empowered with, regardless whether I don't believe it because maybe there's a lot of shame or something, you know, something along that negative self-talk. But the ability to be able to live a sober life is always there. So I, I may look at that a little bit differently than um, you guys were talking about in the beginning. Um, it's, there's kind of like a, a leaping point here that uh, I do have a choice, what, you know, each day whether to, to, to use or not or, um, you know, to take, I mean, really comes down to self-care for me. Um, and then having community, having close friends, being able to show up for each other and to be able to be vulnerable with each other. Um, vulnerability was definitely one of the things that I, I felt I was missing when it comes to I had friends or associates or acquaintances, but I didn't have a lot of intimacy in those relationships. So, hmm. yeah. So and I believe, I mean, people who successfully complete Odyssey and, and then sort of take an approach like, okay, I don't have to work on this anymore, I'm cured or whatever, uh, generally fail at some point. The people who stay involved in the recovery community mm -hmm. In things like not talking about oh how are you doing today buddy, but but social events, fun stuff, bowling, uh, softball, yeah. uh, exactly. going to movies together, things like that, and hanging around that that recovery community. And there are tens of thousands of people in the recovery community in Utah. They have a much better chance of succeeding and staying sober. Yeah, and it's interesting in in my case where I've been involved and stepped back out. It was when I withdrew from the group. Sure. 
And you feel a guilt when so many people are, want you to succeed. <laughs> and when you do fail, it is a horrible feeling. You do, last thing in the world you want to go back and admit defeat. But every time that I have, the group has been so warm and welcoming. Mm -hmm. They want you to succeed, and that's that's a nice situation. And within the context of Odyssey House, people have walked away, but we've met through this show. A number of people have come back, and they've all been welcomed back with open yeah, arms. Yeah, and they've done a lot better the second or third or fourth time through, too. So, And it's um, got to be so disappointing for a parent or a loved one to see someone in recovery and all of a sudden start sleeping well at night, not worrying, and seeing that person go back out. Yeah. And going back out is just the term that we use for trying drugs and alcohol but, again. But, but see, the recovery community, if they're really doing what they should be doing, it wouldn't be you come and tell me that you got drunk last night. I go, oh, trip, oh, that's terrible. It should be lifting you up and saying, okay, you had a slip. Okay, what do you do? Let's go out to, today and talk about it and play golf or something. I mean, it's not, it, it's not the end of the world. It is not. And, you know. and you've been through it, I assume. Uh, Yes. Once or twice. But that guilt... The are, you, are, you, are you limiting that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only five. No, but it, it is part of the process. So now you've had a chance. You work with recovery centers. You're a broadcaster, a podcaster. What is the most fulfilling part about what you do now? What's, what do you love the best? Um, besides just the, the notion and of you know giving back, which is how I started to answer that question I think the first time but it's what brings me meaning and, and purpose um, but it's also again working with the community a, a colleagues I you know I, I work um, at Wasside Recovery even though I have my own practice I have a, um, a an amazing group of colleagues that uh, honestly do care about each other and do support each other in, in ways that I haven't you know, experience really in the past, but I, I will be say that the first place I worked was at, which was it's not around anymore, but it's called um, Recovery Bridge. Um, I did my original internship back when I was doing the uh, LSAC program at the university. Um, it really was a, a powerful experience, and the community there. I'm still close <coughs> with a, a number of the people I met through there. Um, in, in fact, uh, Brett Heiner, who's uh, um, ran his own um, lighthouse recovery for many years, a very successful IOP program. Um, we're still close friends, and I didn't. Do IOP, it. by the way. IOP, yeah. So it stands in, for intensive out, outpatient. Okay. Yeah, and um, which is you know honestly what the majority of people start at when they're going into treatment. They they attempt, uh, and some are very successful. Um, with that level of care, um, but I work in residential now, and the, so the focus is, I, you know, we've got people. It's a little bit different because of private insurance, which dictates how long people can stay. Um, we get we used to get people to stay up to sixty to ninety days, and the success rate was better uh, in some ways. Now, if you can get thirty days, it's it's pretty magical. Um, and so you have a shorter period of time to work with them, but they do have now more levels of care. So it, it instead of just you know having someone start at residential and then go to an outpatient uh, day treatment, which is um, you know, partial hospitalization, um, and what that happens there is people are there from nine to five, you know, during the day, and then they go home to their families or 
whatever, and some of them can work in the evenings too. So it, there's still a, a great support system and they're still able to work, at themselves, work on themselves. And that can go on for a few months. And so then normally the numbers show it. If you can stay in treatment for about a year, your chances of staying sober, you know, go from, you know, you know, 15 to 20 percent up into the 80s and the 90s percent if you can put, commit to a year of treatment. That first number is discouraging, isn't it? It's, it is. But if you went to a physician, if you had cancer and he said you've got a 15 or 20 percent chance of cure, you'd walk out. Yeah, but see what he's talking about it is because of insurance is... I mean, Odyssey has a bigger advantage over somebody taking private insurance because our people can stay six, eight months a year uh, and be covered by the finances that are that are covering them coming into our program. Yeah. And there is a better success rate than if you can only go 28 days and your insurance provider cuts you off. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's wrong. I, 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 <laughs> it is. You and I have the same case there. You know, yeah. and... and and it, it, if it'd be the same if can you imagine if you went in and you had cancer and your insurance company said we'll let you do chemo or radiation for 28 days but after that <laughs> you're on your own <laughs> how many more people would be dying of cancer and it's the same numbers that he analogy. was giving yeah. you know yeah. and insurance companies don't do that with cancer or diabetes or anything like that but they do with addiction yeah and okay. and yet they probably feel like they're doing something at least hey we're giving you 28 days come yeah. on what do you want yeah. <laughs> you know you better get into this program yeah. and work even though the data shows that it, that the longer you can stay and you know your chances start going up exponentially so but that's why they, they they would prefer to pay for you know day treatment or IOP or something like that. I mean, I understand. I understand this. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I do understand it. So. And you've seen some amazing success stories. Yeah, we've seen amazing stories. People that that um, at Wasatch, the people that finish a year of the program, most of them have a very stable life at that point. Um, they're also really engaged in the community, and I, I agree with the things Randall said. Is it's those extracurricular. Um, activities, you know, whether it be bowling, um, softball's huge here in Utah in the recovery field. There, there are probably 50, 60, maybe more, 70 teams that, that play softball. Sober softball. It's huge. It's remarkable. I n- never participated. I, I had a <clears throat> Coke cup with a beer in it at the Larry H. Miller Park on 13th East and was a regular there. I mean, I used to use golf as an excuse to drink. I'd drink a beer a whole, you know, but now there are groups of people that sober golf, you know. And, and it is community, and it all comes back to community. Yeah. Now, you're also doing private practice. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, and I've been doing private practice for actually quite a few years. Um, and one of the things that I like about that is that it, 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 gives, it gives me a little perspective outside of um, just the, the addiction. About a third of my clients and that I, I work with are dictionary, but I, I also like to be able to work with adolescents. Um, it's something that I have a, a strong passion for. Um, and I think that there's, uh, especially those years and those developmental years where identity is, is, is part of the focus, it's so important to have support. Um, and I, I really believe that the that, and the and the, the adolescents I've worked with over the the past um, seven to eight years 
have seen such great you know, movement and progress in their lives and their ability to feel like they're connecting to someone and someone's accepting them for who they are. And sometimes that's half the job besides you know, the therapeutic interventions that are used um, and the modalities that are used. Sorry, I got that in. Again. What was that word again? <laughs> modalities. Um, that's been a really powerful Do you think there's enough mental health counseling and concern in secondary, junior high schools and high schools? It's just beginning, actually. Um, there, there have been some changes taking place. And, and I think we talked about this on the podcast because Odyssey got involved um, with some grant money, and I, I'm not sure where it came from, but to put therapists in the schools and even though this is a little bit controversial, the kids could sign up without their families knowing about it and meet with a, a, a licensed, qualified therapist. And you can understand why that may oh, be. Oh, certainly, yeah, it's controversial. controversial. But the results have been remarkable. In fact, they've, and Randall maybe knows more about this than I do, but the program has increased and it's taken off so quickly. And the problem is it's just filling a huge hole that exists here in our community. And that is um, that we have a, have a, a serious mental health issue um, and it's going untreated. And it's, the, it's starting in children, and by the time they get to adolescent age, it's probably already in full swing. And a lot of things get misdiagnosed in that population. So well, and, we're and doing better at it, but we can still... We're, we're in the... Utah is in, like, the top three states of untreated mental health for children and adolescents. Wow. Yeah. And culturally, it's a situation where if you're more than likely in the LDS culture, mm -hmm. it's something that is probably not thought of, at least on the addiction part of things, yeah. not necessarily the mental health. Yeah. Yeah, your see, they, go, they go together. Yeah, they really yeah. And, do. and it's, you know, our, our, our teen suicide rate is terrible. Um, oh, yeah, we lead the country. Yeah, and, and, I, and the legislature just this last year allocated a, a fair amount of money so that each school district can start putting more therapist-type people in each individual school because it works so well. If I, you know, if I know I can, without talking to my parents, if I can go into this office and talk with you or you and, and talk about my problems, you know, it, it's helpful. Yeah. yeah. Well, they well, were, the response was really remarkable, how many kids responded to this option. And, and I think that surprised everyone because they weren't sure if kids were going to come out. But w when they started opening this up in some different schools, the, they were signing up within, you know, a week or two, the amount of every, the, all the slots were filled. So it's like, it's not that they don't want to have help, but maybe they feel stigmatized or they don't want to talk to their families about it because the families have told them they, they don't need to do that. You can either get it all in church or you can get it all at home or, you know, whatever. What surprised me is that grade school was the first one to fill up, not the high school that we were working that is, in. That is really surprising. That you have kids, first through sixth grade, saying, I, I, I need to talk. That's when it should happen. Yeah, I had... Fortunately, when I was growing up in Detroit, I had a very nurturing group of people who helped me in that regard, nuns. So yeah, well, they would either hit you yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. They were yeah, yeah, Zorro yeah, with the yeah, ruling. Yeah. Hey, we have run out Paul, you've been our smartest guest. Oh, shush. Because you, you have taken a different modality <laughs> approach to this, uh, this whole and, podcast. I'm sorry. We, I'm sorry to our listeners. Yeah, yeah and we are a modality ourselves since we're both TV and we're there you video go. on Comcast Channel 17. I want to thank Bill Francis and the folks who put us on, but also we are a podcast. And uh, as such, iTunes, Spotify, 
iTunes is a big deal. That's only the creme de la creme. I I agree. That's because the modality of no, I don't. well, but how did that work for so you and I? We're on iTunes too. Oh, we're on iTunes too. Yeah, they actually take my a couple yeah, of my podcasts. So, so, but Paul, thank you so much. So we are going to have a number on the bottom of the screen, and I'm going to give up Paul's email address, which is on there as well. Leo put it up, and if you have a question for Paul, he's a smart guy. I have known him since 1981. I'll do the math. That's at least 104 years ago. But he's a very smart guy. As you can see and you know just talking to people is the most yep. important thing so if you've got a loved one if you've got some issues please give a call the number we're going to put up is the odyssey house is number. first and then odyssey's number which is 801-322-3222 okay okay you almost petered out on the last two <laughs> 801-322-3222 yeah okay. and give odyssey house a call or paul's email address will be up on the screen Talk to someone. The second that you have someone that you can talk to, it gets better. And as you can see just from this show and our previous shows, there are a lot of people out there who really do care. Yep. I want to thank you so much for watching. Paul, thank you so thank much. You. We'll see you next time. Take care.